Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Um, the irony of this song is never lost on me. Um, Elvis Presley caught in a trap with Priscilla Presley. Okay, so for those of you that have never been in a trap, most of them don't come with Priscilla Presley. So the irony of this song is never, ever lost on me. And uh, we're joined today by Betty Rogers. Betty, were you an Elvis fan? Oh, gosh, you're putting me on the spot there. there. Not especially. <laughs> I know. Neither was I. I thought he was kind of a weird dude, even when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I saw him on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> what did you think? Now, what, Pardon? Well, for, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Sacramento, California area. So we're homies? What part of Sacramento did you grow up in? In the north area. What part? Um, at at the North Highlands. North Highlands. That wasn't uh-huh. North Highlands. Out by McClellan Air Force Base. <laughs> oh yeah. See, I grew up in South Sacramento. Okay. So I uh, down by Florin Road, Franklin Road, uh-huh. Mac Road, down there. So at the other end yeah. of town. And uh, I went on field trips though once to uh, McClellan Air Force mm-hmm. Base. I did. Walked around and uh, actually saw a, a propeller uh, aircraft on the flight line and was asking, you know, is this something that was left over from World War II in Korea? And he said, no, it actually flies a lot in Vietnam. That's why it's here because uh, we do a lot of training stuff for mm-hmm. guys going over there. I was like, oh, really? So, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you grew up in Sacramento mm-hmm. and uh, – you see Elvis for the first time, and you're like, yeah, not so much. Yeah, I didn't know what all the excitement was. You know, they had all the girls dancing and, and collapsing. and <laughs> Right, right. And you were like, not so much. I appreciate him more now, I think, than I did then. All right. Well, were, you a Beatles, were you a Beatles fan? So what music did you listen to growing up? Well, starting off early, um, there was Ricky Nelson. <laughs> yeah, Ricky Nelson. And Fabian and, uh, oh gosh, the Kingston Trio. Um, I'm trying to remember the 45s that I My sister had an album that had the Kingston Trio on it. And they sang Michael Row the Boat Ashore. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Yeah, and Elvis came in. He, well, he kind of predated a lot of that, but then became really prominent in all of that. And then when he went on Ed Sullivan. But he was a little bit different than Ricky Nelson. Smooth and on TV every day. Seemed like a really nice guy. Elvis seemed like a little bit of a different guy. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Now, you, um, I did not know this about you, but, um, and that's why uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that we're doing these interviews separate, um, because your track, uh, first of all, to meet your husband, Ken, and then your role in the first documentary, Bravo, Common Men, Uncommon Valor, 
which begets the second documentary, um, I Married the War, is a pretty interesting path in my, uh, in my opinion. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today. So Ken says that, you know, you grew up in a family of, uh, of, of veterans. Um, can you explain that to us? Well, my father was a stretcher bearer in Italy in World War II. Um, he, um, and then, then my brother, or excuse me, my cousins um, served during the Vietnam War. Um, my aunt and uncle both served during World War II. Um, I was very close to both of them and uh, my aunt. They, they met in New Guinea <laughs> and then um, fell in love and married in the Philippines. And um, so, and then they were very active as veterans advocates all their lives, uh, very active in the American Legion. And um, my uncle was the state commander of the American Legion, and my aunt. The state commander of, of what state? California? California. Uh-huh. That's not yeah. a big, that's not a very big deal, is it? Holy smokes, <laughs> right? Well, we were very proud of him, and my my aunt was um, just as active. Um, in fact, she went back and testified in front of Congress um, to uh, promote well, to advocate for female veterans because women didn't feel that they were truly veterans because they didn't go out and fire guns in, in combat. Um, and so she fought for their rights and she was appalled at the condition of the VA uh, healthcare systems and went back and testified in front of Congress um, on behalf of uh, veterans and just um, and we were very close and spent a lot of time with them and my mother always revered my aunt and uncle especially because of their um, service and their dedication. So you are a little bit older than I am and we grew up in Sacramento which is like 60 miles from the epicenter of the Vietnam protest, which is Berkeley, right? Mm -hmm. One of, one of right. the epicenters, right? I mean, I mean, I, you know, Betty probably had the same experience I had. Kids would leave your block, right? Teenagers. And I was a little bit younger, right? So I'd have been like 1968, I'd have been 10, right? And so these kids would have been 15, 16, 17, right? And they would leave. They'd go down to San Francisco, and they'd come back with tie-dyed, you know, whatever, their hair long. And they left, like, looking like somebody, a character out of Dobie Gillis. Most of you don't know who that is. But for those <laughs> of us that do, you know, khaki-wearing, white shirt-wearing, wearing a belt, you know, kind of early 60s dress of young Americans or blue jeans. And they came back as, you know, kind of some version of a hippie. So you're growing up in a family of veterans, you know, very close to uh, one of the epicenters of uh, the protests of the war in Vietnam. How did that how did that affect you? Well, believe it or not, um, it did not affect me very much at all. I was married for the first time in 1968 and we moved back to um, Maine which was his home state. 
and we're very isolated from from the activities. What we got was through the news, and there wasn't a lot of news in Maine uh, about the Vietnam War. So, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, my actually, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what year it was. I think 1966. Um, I had it was probably my first real boyfriend. I guess I'll describe him that way. Um, who went off to Vietnam and wasn't there three months even when he was killed. And so um, that that brought it all home to me as you know personally. Um, and so I, I moved on from that. So you graduate, you're, are you still in high school? Had you graduated from no. high school? No, I, I graduated in 65. Okay. And your yeah. first real boyfriend goes to Vietnam and you're writing letters. And then yes. his, and is somebody that you went to high school with or somebody who you... Yes. In fact, um, through at least junior high school also. Wow. Yeah. And... Um, and we were we were always really good friends, but it got more serious then in in 1966, and uh, probably partly because he was, you know, he was in the army and off he was going to go to to war, and so it, it it really changed our relationship. And um, talk about. Do you mind talking about that? Do um. Because that is one of, you know, the whole notification thing and the shock of it and all of that. Mm -hmm. What do you, mm -hmm. what do you remember? Um, what do you remember about most about that whole, you know, process, Betty? And you're what, 18, 19? Mm-hmm. What do I remember about it? I remember... Uh, well, you know, obviously it was devastating um, to to realize, you know, it, it what war is about really came home to me um, personally. Right. Um, I, I it's funny the things that that I remember, like the the funeral, um, the at the graveyard and the. You know this twenty-one gun salute and the flag and um, all the things that that happened with that. But what I remembered most was his mother saying, "Well, we're so grateful that we had him for twenty years." And I remember being so horrified to think that that was enough. You know right. that that they were happy with that. That here's a life that was ended um, so prematurely. Somebody who had his whole life in front of him, and um, and it was over. The um, so you and Vietnam have a long relationship. That's true. That's wow. true. And it's interesting because I think I really put that in my past 
and not until really right now at this moment do I realize what a connection it was for um, with Ken. Wow, aren't you get, aren't you glad you came on? <laughs> the, no, you know it's no, it's amazing. Um, I think your story, your story is amazing, and it just got amazinger. <laughs> um, um, as you know, as you and I kind of sit here and shoot the shit about it. Um, but you, but so from there, you go off to Maine, and mm-hmm. you're really insulated from it. Yes, mm-hmm. I was, I was. Which is probably and... not, which is probably not a bad thing. True. Right. Right. That's true. It's yeah, a... there wasn't, there wasn't protests. There wasn't. I mean, it was. There, it was just news of something that was happening in the other part of the world, and right. Far away. and you know th- there weren't people from the community who had gone over there. So, um, yeah, it just wasn't um, forefront with us so, like it would have been if I was still back in California. Hello. Yeah. Um, so I want to um, I want you to kind of explain to us. Um, Ken was talking about. Um, that that in your family there was this tradition of transcribing the stories of veterans right could you explain right. that i mean where does that come from and 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 how does that impact your life um that's that was my mother who did that um as i said she always revered my aunt and uncle and um you know any veteran really and so she would just have them sit down with her and tell their stories and she would um she took shorthand she was really good at shorthand and she would um write down their stories and then transcribe them and she didn't do it with you know like a huge group of people but it it brought home to me the you know the the importance of their history the importance of their service, um, and so it was always there in the background for me, telling you know preserving history, and that's kind of what happened with us with Bravo is is um, gosh we need to preserve this history because but, nobody else is telling it you know nobody but else you have this it. in you have this in your background though and and that's yeah. what I find so it resonates with you. So this whole thing that becomes Bravo, that begets I Married the War, makes instant. So as you go to a reunion, as you as you discover Romeo, and then <laughs> your life comes back to Vietnam, and um, and now you're relate to me how this idea of the documentary even happens. So you're initially doing the the you're going to record. Bravo just to record it and to share it what what is the what is the initial thought the initial thought was here we are we're listening to all these stories at this reunion there are all these people who've had this experience together there's a lot of respect and honor among them um, just understanding what they all went through together and they knew who the 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 heroes were and and um someone would walk by and and i'd seen everybody just rushing up to him and wanting to hug him and shake his hand and and so i asked ken who that was and 
and it was Steve Weiss. And um, I said, Why, what is it about him? And he said he went through every bad thing that happened at Quezon. And um, so there's this, this love of each other and respect for each other. And so then, and you know, we kept hearing more and more stories. And I heard Ken talking with others about their memories. And, and I was sitting there thinking, and I asked Ken, I said, has anybody ever told this story? And he said, I don't think so. Bits and pieces in books and so forth. And he said, why don't you ask the skipper? So I went up to Ken Pipes and um, asked him if, if anything had ever been done with, with the story. And he said that he'd been approached by um, some people from Hollywood and almost they almost did a movie, but he would not agree to the content of it because there was a love interest and some other things that he said, my men would never do that. And I do not approve of this film. And so it never happened. And he said, so, uh, and I said, would you mind if we tried? And he said, oh, please do. But he said, it probably won't happen. It's just, it's never happened and it probably won't. And um, so that was, he gave it his blessing and um, one thing led to another. And... So, but your original intent is to, is to, oh. is to create the documentary in order to just to share it with everybody that, that, that was there? Well, to preserve the history. Right. And to give the men a voice more than anything is to let them, you know, Vietnam veterans were stifled. Their voices were stifled. And um, so it, it was just to give them a voice. And, and, and what, we really didn't know okay. or think about what, you know, where it, where it could go from there. Um, we just knew that we needed to do something. And and a documentary film was the best way to do it because then the men are. So when does that occur stories. to you, though? So you said you really didn't know where it was going to go. So you begin to capture this, and as you're capturing it, when does the idea crystallize that that well? Why wouldn't we make a documentary of this? I mean, come on, doesn't everybody do that? Oh, oh yeah, it started out as a documentary. All right. We knew we knew that. Okay, you knew that. Yeah. So you were going to make yeah. a documentary, but where it was going to go, right. you had no idea. Right. That's okay. exactly right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, as you began to kind of go down that road of where it would go, um, was there a moment where you kind of looked around and said, you know, this might be something bigger than we thought? Oh, yes. When was that? Um probably the first time that we showed it to anyone and it was to the men in the film and their, and their spouses. Um, it was at a reunion and our feeling was if they were happy, that was the most important thing to us. Right. You know, anything else after that is gravy, but we wanted to please them. And, um, and I'll never forget um, during this, the screening Ken and the skipper were sitting across the aisle from each other and, and the skipper kept reaching over and grabbing his arm. And um, 
and then when the film was done, he jumped up and, and reached over and gave Ken the biggest hug, and he said, you couldn't have done it any better. <laughs> and, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, no, I, and, I mean, I just you get tears in your eyes just thinking about that because, yes. as you said, you know, you know, their voices were stifled. Their beings were stifled. You know what I mean? Yes. I, I look back as, as somebody who's been the, the great beneficiary of um, of everything that they went through. You come home and, and people clap for you in the in the airport, right? You try to buy something to eat and people pay for it, right? They had the exact opposite yeah. experience. I mean, they... they um, their experience was nowhere near what my experience was. And the reason, the only reason I had the experience I had was because of that the nation grew up on them. The nation learned that that's not the way you treat the people you send to fight your wars. But these guys got sent that. And, and in the, their particular case, the Marines from Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 26th Marines, I mean, they fought in one of the, one of the most difficult you know, fights. And I guess every mm-hmm. fight is difficult. It all depends where you're at. But right. in terms of sustained misery mm-hmm. and terror and trauma and experience, I mean, they went through about as bad as anybody went through in Vietnam. And so I can only imagine uh, Ken Pipes. Um, and, and again, I, one of the things that's so moving in Bravo is you hear the recordings that he made at Quezon and you hear the anguish in his voice. And, but the result, you know, he, he resolved in mm-hmm. his voice as the leader of the unit that they will press on and they will do what they're supposed to do. But you can hear the anguish in his voice clearly yes. after, you know, the ghost patrol. And if you haven't seen Bravo, you can find it on Amazon prime and you should watch it. It is, it is fantastic. One of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And I don't say that because Betty's on it on here today um i say because it's just a fact and watch it to the very end when they talk about what it was like to come home to a country that that and who says this i just wanted my country cowbright i want my country to love me the way i love it yes I can't even say that. You know, yeah. I'm. I, it, no, I'm. I'm sitting there watching it. Now this is fifty years later, right? And and you know, one of the things that I talk about in post traumatic winning is you never get over it, right? And Ken and I were talking about watching Frank McCauley describe being in a trench line during this thing they call the payback attack after the ghost patrol. And when they go back and they get it on with the North Vietnamese and they surprise them and they get in this fight, you watch Frank McCauley and you're sitting there going, oh my God. And you watch other interviews and, you know, it is as vivid. You're watching it. There's no way you can't think like, good God, he's there right now. Yes. Yes. He left that room. He was back there. Right. Right, and you're watching it going, oh, my God. And then when in this segment, uh, it's at the end, and these guys are talking about what it was like to come home and flying into El Toro here in Southern California, not 15 miles from where I am right now. 
um, and protesters, you know, at the gate, spitting on them, calling them baby killers and stuff like that. And these guys were young. When they came home, they were 19, 20. Ken said he's the old man at 21. Right, right. Right. But, but and, and who's who's the guy who says that? I just wanted my country to love me as much as I loved it. That was Cal Bright. <sighs> Literally, I mean... For me, just thinking about it, right, I have tears in my eyes right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, go, to go through all that, and then these guys come home, and nobody wants to deal with them. And not only doesn't want to deal with them, they go into the American Legion, and they get shit on in the American Legion. Like, what's wrong with you guys? You can't you can't kick their asses? Right. Right? And it's like, and you wonder why they tried to drop a cork in it, and you wonder why the rate of drug abuse, homelessness, alcoholism, Right. And suicide mm-hmm. is what it was is what it is among Vietnam veterans, mm-hmm. and you can see exactly why. So, Bravo gets released. At what point in the whole in the whole process? Uh, and Ken kind of teased this in his interview. But when does this second film begin to crystallize in your head, Betty? Not until. Not until we were through with Bravo. Um, I don't think it started while we were still producing Bravo, but you start showing it to people, and everybody after a screening, people come up and want to talk to you and um, share their stories or give you their response. And so many were were women who said they didn't, they didn't understand what their husbands went through, um, and now they, or other family members, not just their husbands. Uh, we had daughters say, "Now I understand my dad," or "Now I understand my uncle," and um, and so then the women were starting to get involved with with um, our our journey, and then. Um, our our editor said, "What are you going to do next? You know, what's your <laughs> what's your next film?" And um, and then I read books by Siobhan Fallon. Um, you know, when the men are gone, and um, confusion of languages about um, from the viewpoint of the wives of of you know the military wives and then you it started to sink in that well women have a story too or spouses have a story too and then um and then Ken Corco at one of the reunions said looked me right in the eye and he said Betty you know you're a Vietnam veteran too you wives all are because you'd have to deal with um you know what we came home the the problems we came home with and um, so, you know, one it just kind of built and built. And then um, our editor, John Nutt, suggested that the film be um, the wives of the men in Bravo. And uh, we thought about that, and we thought um, that we really wanted to, if we were going to do this, we wanted to reach out to more generations and thought, well, why not World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, 
Desert Storm, um, Iraq, Afghanistan. And um, so then it just... Essentially the timeless nature of this. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes. Right. I mean, look at look at the Greek mythology, you know. I mean, it's there. Right. Um, right. And, and so it's a timeless thing. And, and we could only go back as far as World War II. Um, but you're right. It's... It's timeless, and um, and and truly, there isn't much out there yet about how the war comes home. Um, did that we, su- did we, that surprise you as you began to do research? Because let me tell you, when that hits me, so I was able to watch watch the the documentary, courtesy of Betty, and um. At the end of it, um, I was here in my home by myself, and it made me very quiet. And I, the only way I would describe the feeling is it made me want to be alone. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't have those feelings together very often. And that was that's the impact of the film on me. And then as I began to think about it, I thought, you know. I don't know that I've ever seen a movie like that 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 talks about tra- the trauma of war coming into your home and what it's like to live with that on a daily basis. I don't know that I've ever seen that. And now I hear, based on what I do, right? I hear that I've never seen anything like this the way you look at it, the detail you look at it with in my life. And so I've heard that before. And um, and so what's amazing, though, is you guys have done the same thing. Um, and it's just, and, and, and the more I racked my brain, I thought, have I ever? And that's why I think this is going to be such a big deal because I don't know that I've ever seen anything like this, which is weird, right? True, true, and we're not we're not aware of anything like this either. So, um, you know, that was part of our motivation as well. We need to tell this story <laughs> again. You, you know, think? that was the thing with Bravo. We need to tell this story, and and um, so it it really grew um, pretty quickly. And then, how do you how do you tell this story without pointing fingers? You know, how do you um, honor the people who have served and and make the public aware of what they're really asking of people that they're going to come home changed and so, so how do you do that because because you know without making them look like without demonizing them right because right, right. Ken, Ken and I you know last week when he came on you know our, we look at it and that towards the end of the interview, we start talking about, you know, Ken, I think Ken said, that's me. I'm the guy who did that, right? And and I remember uh, there's different lines in the, in, in, in the movie, in the documentary. Uh, one of them's already in post-traumatic winning, and that is, I have to be a better version of myself. And, and yet the guys aren't ever... Um, you see pictures, and sometimes you, they're in videos, 
but they never speak in the um, in in the documentary itself. And and some of the stuff that happens is is very real, and it's not very flattering. It's not the side of your life that you would want to have told. So, how did you how did you do that? How did you find women that were willing to uh, willing to do that? Because I think there'd probably a lot of women told you. I'd really like to, but I just don't think, you know, I don't think it would be good. Well, actually, we had a couple of interviews set up where um, the husband, at the last minute, we were um, trying to schedule it, and the husband said, no, I don't want you to do this. And one in particular, um, and, and I know it's because they were afraid of how it would reflect on them. Right. Uh, and one in particular was uh, a gentleman who's very active in, as a kind of a public figure in his community. And oh. um, so, and oh, she would have been such a wonderful interview. I just loved her the minute I met her. And, um, but I also respect, you know, and, and so the, the first interview was Terry Topmiller. And so... Um, she was able to speak freely because her husband was had passed away. And um, so she got us off to a great start. Because now, when you say passed was, away, did he die of natural causes? Did he commit suicide? He, he did um, end his own life okay. after, after 40 years after Vietnam. Um, he just couldn't, couldn't live with... You know, we talk about moral injury, and I think he just couldn't live with what we all did, you know, over there. Even though, um, well, I won't get into the, <laughs> the background of the war, but right. um, um, anyway, um, she was, um, well, I've lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. No, it was we're talking about um, how did you thread the needle w bringing them on and and talking about, you know, such sensitive subject without doing more damage to your relationship or in a way that wasn't disrespectful to Right. To, right, right, right. Right. And then and Terry was um, was able to talk about it freely, which got us off to a great start. Um, and we saw the, you know, the, the tragedy of how it, it affected him. And then, of course, the, um, how the war affected him and then how it came home to the family, to her, to the kids, to the grandkids who no longer have a wonderful grandfather around. And he, they had a wonderful life together. And um, he was very successful, a well-respected professor of history and, and a university, and um, his students loved him, and yet he still couldn't live with, with what happened. And so um, then she's talking about what it was like for her after he was gone. And, and um, so, and, you know, as with each interview, when we would finish each one, the crew and us would look to get look at each other and say, "Wow, we could make a film out of this one person," right. you know, and that was the case with all eleven of them. They all um, there were two others, um, 
um, who whose husbands ha um, had passed away. And um, so they were able to, to talk freely. And then, you know, um, the cover of our, um, you know, the cover image for the film right. is a couple that we knew here. Um, and they were, uh, they moved away since, but um, they were very special to us. He's a, a veteran. And Ken and, and I were talking with him one day and, and when we were envisioning the film and we said, so how do you, um, do you think it's a good thing even to, you know, put this story out there would it, where it could reflect on the veteran? And he said, he says, you know, I really thought about that. And he said, I think we get to have our voice. We get to have our say. It's only fair that the wives get to have their say too. And that was that was really inspiring to us that, you know, that he could step back from um, the situation and allow um, his wife, if, if that were to happen, to, um, to speak freely. And um, so from, uh, unfortunately, they moved away, so we weren't able to, to do their interview, but, or her interview. But um, that, so when I would get to know each woman that we interviewed and talk with them ahead of time and, and say, this is what we need from you, um, how will your husband feel about it? We really talked it through so that they were more than happy to um, the ones who did interview with us were, um, were open with us, pretty much. I mean, you know, we all um, want to protect our loved ones. And there was a, a little reservation, but there was still enough of the story that people understand. And, and um, you know, in, in some cases they were great with details and other cases they were cautious and we respected that right um, but, but you know what i think you're right i think that when you can tell what betty about 80 percent of the story and that 80 percent is overwhelmingly powerful yes when you try to tell the other 20 percent and you go inside as a catholic <laughs> i'm saying this you go mm -hmm. inside the holy of holies then yes. that's probably a place that you want to stay away from because yeah. it's too it's too personal. And I think anybody anybody who shares in public, um, they will tell you that you know there's things I do talk about, but then there's some things that I don't. Right. And and I think that's just I think that's normal and natural. But the um, just the just the discussion that you what you do is you throw the subject in the center of the room. <laughs> And you're listening to story after story after story of, um, you know, of, of what happens when this does come home. And, and again, I think the beauty of it is, again, like what I do, I mean, it is any, any traumatic experience. This is not unique to wartime. You could have done these interviews with victims of domestic violence, victims of sexual violence. And you would have got the same narrative, in my opinion, um, mm -hmm. right? You would have got the same interviews about what it's like and how this thing echoes in our life. Mm -hmm. Howard, let me read you some quotes, and I want, you, I want to get your thoughts. 
um, you never get over it. These are from your documentary, okay? Right, right, right. Here's another. Um, And that's basically in reference to uh, what, you know, what what their husbands went through um, in their combat experience, horrific things. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who feel that, that they can, you know, and this is from the heart, they really think they can help people and help them to get over it. But the reality is, you never do. It's always there. It's never going to go away. Interesting. PTSD. Um, yeah. Well, no, and again, I my own opinion is, you know, that was my, inter- the first thing I ever learned about mental health was that statement. You're never going to get over this. And consider this, just the night and day difference between hearing that as opposed to going through all of this stuff like, how do I get over this, right? How do I get mm-hmm. back to normal? And when somebody that's credible looks at you and, in my case, gives you this incredible gift of you're not going to get over it. This is the path you're going to walk down, and you can do it. I mean, what a difference, right, in terms of where you start and your understanding uh, at, at, at a very young, at a very, uh, not young age maybe, but at a very early part of this of this life-changing event that's happened to mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another line. Alone in the same room. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the self-isolation of, of um, someone who's been through combat, you know, that's that, that was a thread um, th- through every interview was the need for, the, for at times to just um, check out and go into their own, private world whatever that is and as as she said in in that moment in the film you know what what she needed um was his engagement with her in conversation and planning and you know living life and uh, and he needed to just go away for a while mentally and um that is that's very common Self-isolation. Now, this is... Step away from friends, family. This is every day, sometimes in the middle of what you're doing. All of a sudden, you see them going there, right? Yes. In the middle, you know, so this is is your life. Uh, Next quote. And so as a wife, you're thinking, what did I do? Right. You know, what (laughs) What did I say? Right. (laughs) Living on pins and needles. Not walking on them, living on them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um... Next one. I have to be a better version of myself. Hmm. Now, let me, for those of you who, 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 obviously, I'm probably the only one that's seen it, that'll listen to this. Maybe not, but um, uh, this guy happens to be a Marine and um, and Vietnam veteran. And uh, they're, as a family, they're going through it. And so she, his wife, makes an appointment with a family counselor. And the family counselor interviews him each independently and then brings them all together. And then she's talking. um, And again, you never hear from him uh, in the documentary. But she says, you know, after that, he looked at me and said, I have to be a better version of myself. And the reason that that has had such an impact on me, Betty, is because, 
you know, when you talk to people that go through trauma, you're trying to get back to be the person that you used to be. And I think the way that that's articulated is you're not going to be able to be that person again. You, you, there's other things in this recipe that make, you know, the product that make the cake fundamentally different. Okay. You thought you were going to make a chocolate cake. Well, it's not going to be chocolate now, right? Chocolate might be a part of it, but it's going to be something very different. And so to me, the thought of, I have to evolve myself to be a better version of me is understandable. And, um, I think much more, uh, in tuned with reality Right, as opposed to I'm going to get over it. I knew, I just want to be the person I used to be. I'm curious about your thoughts about I have to be a better version of myself. Well, that was uh, a wonderful part of her interview, and and it came from this great um, counselor who encouraged her to talk about herself. And um, if she had not had to really think about it and think about how things affected her and how she felt about things and had to verbalize it, which is another thing. Right. You know, you can have feelings, but um, expressing them is is another thing. If she had never done that, then through this counseling process, he would have never understood what she what what she was really going through. She had to express it. And in doing so, he was able to look at himself and think, man, I am really affecting you. This isn't all about me, you know? It's not about all about my, um, what I'm never going to get over, you know? It's, it's um, I'm affecting other people too, and especially the, the woman I love most, the person I love most. And so it helped, through that process, it helped him to look at himself and think, I need to be a better version of myself, yeah. And and again, I as somebody again who provides this in my own family and again the interesting part about Ken's discussion and my discussion is I mean I heard that, right? And and I talk about when you hear the truth, it lands with a thud and it needs no salesman. And uh, I always tell everybody Kanye West says that so they'll think I'm really cool, but it's actually my quote. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, but it does when you hear things that are truthful like that. I mean, nobody needs to get out their secret decoder ring and and figure out what does this mean. And I love the the way that that it was said in the documentary. I have to be a better version of me. Here's another one. You've got to talk to me. We've got to be a team. And this stands directly, you know. And diametrically opposed to the isolation piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was Gloria Jabot, whose um, husband was uh, in the Korean War. And um, she's she's un unfortunately passed away since her interview and never got to see the film, which I'm really sad about. But. Right. She uh, she was a force of nature, <laughs> and she wasn't going to just sit around and and um, let things fall apart. She was very proactive, and 
um, and it ended in, like she says at the end, a long, long love affair that the two of them just um, had a good life together. But um, it, it, she had to make the effort. You know, that I think that's what stands out to me most is that she really had to make that effort to, to say, we have to talk to each other. We can't just go off and sulk and uh it's uh, you know again i'm 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 learning how right my 10 commandments are right and and you know those things that are true is that if you think you can go through this and you think you can fake it and not talk about it all you're going to do is destroy your life and the saddest part is if you only destroyed your life that would be one thing Mm-hmm. But what we tend to do is we destroy the lives of the people that love us the most, right? Sure. Our spouses and our kids. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to me, the hard part about that is that, is that nobody really wants to do that. But you don't know how to deal with this thing. Right. How do I deal with this thing? All the things. Do I, I mean, I've, I've grown up my whole life. Suck it up. You know, men don't talk about stuff like this. Guys older than me didn't talk about this stuff. You know, what am I supposed to do? And you don't know what to do with it. You don't know what to do with it. And then I'm supposed to go to therapy and, and go take their medications, and I hate that stuff, and it's not helping me, and I get worse, and I get worse, and I get worse. And to me, so much of it is if you can sit down and talk to somebody. And I, I always tell everybody, and, you know, it's really funny, Betty. When I do this and their spouse is present, and I say, <clears throat> You know, the fifth commandment is stop faking your mental health. You see all these heads respectfully kind of turn 45 degrees in the audience. Mm-hmm. and But they stop at 45 degrees and then they look. Now, the other person, right, the, the other spouse who's, who's the inflictor, right, um, who's gone through the traumatic experiences, they never even make eye contact. They keep staring straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the sixth commandment. You've got to talk about your shit, and you've got to stay connected to your tribe. And the first person you should talk to is your spouse. Then they don't even stop at a respectful 45 degrees. They straight up turn their head 90 degrees and stare, <laughs> right? And you see, this, you see this all over the auditorium. Now, the other person is staring straight ahead until they have to, like, turn because their spouse is not turning their head anymore. Mm-hmm. And they look, and they're like, What? And you could see all these, and it's most, the majority of women say, you heard what he just said. That's what I say, right? And um, they come up to me, they're like, this can't be Marine Corps stuff, right? And I'm like, oh, no, it's not. It's mine. It's just the truth, right? But we just don't know that, right? We just don't know that, and we put ourselves in those self-isolated places, and really we destroy our lives. We destroy our lives. But, you know, talking about it isn't something you can force either. No. You know, I mean, as a spouse, I can't just go to Ken and say, you know, tell me about what happened to you there. Or, you know, um, what's going on with you right now? You know, you're in a bad mood. What's what's going on? That just doesn't work. You can't force it. You have to you know, see the right moment, the right time. And um, you can't just sit down and say, especially, 
in a moment when when they're self-isolating or when they're reacting in some way with PTSD in an angry moment or um, you know it just you can't just say all right talk to me right now you can't do that yeah that's not really going to help the situation right no <laughs> the um and most of the time it'll send it the other way that's why to me the most yeah. impor- the important part is you know we have to see the utility that this makes things better mm-hmm. i need her this conversation makes my life better Right. And that's and that's a hard bridge. That's a hard valley to get through because that's not the way we're we're raised. That's not the way we're built. You know, we come from a culture of suck it up and take care of your shit, especially if you're a man. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, women are much more apt to, to talk about their shit because they do that. They're, they're more inclined culturally right. to do that. Men, not so much. Right. And, and that's to me the, the, the important thing of you know, of your work here is you're, you're, you're showing that, right? You're showing how things can get better, but they're not the isolation, you know, isolation, not so much. Uh, another line, um, and this is kind of stands in direct opposition to what we just talked about. Um, and it happens right at the 40 minute mark. Um, quote, we couldn't talk. Um, I, <laughs> I don't have it in context. I can't, I can't remember which part of the film that is. Well, it's right at the 40-minute mark, Betty. You should have it memorized by now, don't you think? I know. <laughs> right at the 40-minute mark. I even gave you a number, okay? Um, but I will respond to that, that comment. Um, there are times that you just have to respect that you have to wait. You you have to wait. If you can't talk, you just have to wait until you can. That's that's been a um, a good lesson for me. Is you know I always want to fix everything right away. Right. And um and just to learn that there's a time and there and there's there's a time that you do it and there's a time that you don't. And that time, the time that you can is going to come. It may not happen right when you want it to, but it might be the next day or a week or a month, but it'll come. I want to say it was one of the women who lost their husband um, who took his own life. I, if, if my, and again, I might, I might be wrong okay. about that, but I thought that was the context of it, saying that, you know, her saying that we couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. And and really, what I mean, she's being very gentle. But what she's saying is that he couldn't he couldn't find a way to go there with me, right? Right. Which is right. which is which is awful. Which is awful. And that's why I think it's so important. And I go back to what I do. That I mean, when I first bumped into this, I got pulled deeper into my tribe. I didn't get sent away from it. I wasn't told there was something wrong with me. I got told, in fact, the exact opposite. There's nothing wrong with you. You'll struggle with this for the rest of your life. And the difference in terms of, well, then if there's nothing wrong with me, then I probably shouldn't be afraid to talk about it, right? But if you don't, if you're not fortunate like I was to 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 be told that, then what you feel is 
there is something wrong with me. All these other guys deal with it and I'm struggling, right? And I'm failing and you have to deal with all that. So I think it's, I think it's really important, you know, that, that culturally that it, you know, that we learn more about this. And, and again, the first responder community, you know, the, uh, you know, certainly the military community, you know, the, the community that supports sexual violence and, and, and physical violence, domestic violence, all those communities have to, have to understand that you can't medicate your way out of it. And you really, you can't talk your way out of it. Although both of those are part of getting to a better place. And, and I, you know, and so to me, one of the things your documentary does is, is it promotes a, a more candid discussion of what it is to live with this stuff on a daily basis. And I think that's, uh, that's important. Uh, let me give you another one. There's two more to go, right? Okay. <laughs> Put your big girl panties on. <laughs> I love that. Um, uh, that's her response to um, what she would tell someone who was going to marry a, uh, a combat veteran um, is to just get ready. It's going to be a bumpy ride. And I think I think Sally Jackson also um, echoes that later in the film when she said there are just going to be some things going on that you'll never understand. And uh, so it's, but isn't that true of of um, most relationships in life? I mean, you have you work through them, right? Right. Right. Well, and and I would tell you that that you know. You, what you you don't need to be able to understand the experience you need to be there to help them talk about it and mm-hmm. that safe place that you create together is cuz you know as combat veterans this is you know i'm sure betty's heard this a million times i could only talk to another combat veteran mm-hmm. oh really and i i that it's one of the ways we hide mm-hmm. it's one of the ways w- that we convince ourselves that 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 we can't talk to anybody but we're really hiding and self isolating because we don't know how to do this. And it's honestly, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. But it's also a, a place of comfort. It's that comfort level. Right. You know, you right. know this this other combat veteran is going to understand you and get maybe, you. Maybe, you don't have to explain anything. But maybe they will. Maybe, but not. they don't always. Yeah. You know, and so, but it's, to me, it's more of a way we deflect people that, that we don't, we don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And and there is a certain sure. fear, and it's legitimate that you won't understand me and you'll judge me. And so that's why I say, you know, so who do you talk to this stuff? Who do you talk about these things with? People that love you and, and won't judge you. Now, that's a fairly small group of people in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't run around with, you, you wouldn't run around with your heart on your sleeve. I don't care any of us talking no. about the sensitive issues of our life. We don't do that with just anybody. You know, it's it's a very finite group, and that to me is the group that you have to have, and uh, and that's why this whole concept of what it is to be part of a tribe uh, is important. Big girl panties. What do big girl panties look like? They don't sound like a very attractive thing to me. <laughs> the, the, um, here's one of the things that I found. I know it's true, uh, but when she said it, I I thought it was important, and I wrote it down. I have the, yeah, so I had this I have this page of notes um that I wrote down uh as I was watching. Um 
as he's gotten older, it's all come flooding back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which flies in the face of time heals all wounds. Yeah, that's been one of the things that's been interesting for me to learn in this walk with Bravo and I Married the War is um, the phases that that you go through in your in your life and you know you're busy with your career you can kind of put things aside and and not think about them as much because you're busy you're making plans you're um you know responsible to other people and so forth and then when life slows down and and you retire and you have more time to think um and even so, so that's when it all comes flooding back. And and um, even as he slipped into dementia, all of that was still there, just as fresh as if it had just happened. Um, but you know, it's they talk about how your brain is still forming when you're in your early twenties; that it right. doesn't really um, completely form until you're about twenty-five, and so when you think of how young all of our veterans are when they serve, um, it's, 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 it's embedded in there. And it's, it's, um, it, 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 it determines, it, it, it partly determines who they become and how they live their lives. And, um, so why wouldn't that come back at the end of their lives? It's still there. Well, and they, um, you know, you're retired now. You have more alone time, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was, uh, I was going to see a therapist in Los Angeles. And um, I would go at 1 o'clock, I think, on like Wednesday or Thursday. And I'd like pull in the parking lot. I'd get out of my truck, I'd come walking up, and there'd be this group of black Vietnam veterans um, that would be standing outside because they had just finished up their little group thing they did. And I'd walk up and shoot the shit with them all the time. What's going on, fellas? And, you know, they'd have their hats or their... And I immediately, like, you know, the first time I met, I saw the Marines that were standing there. I'm like, what's up, devil dogs, right? (laughs) And so right immediately, they're like, hey. So we meet, and then we just talk for a minute or two, Every time I was there. So one day I walked in and I looked at my therapist and I said, after all these years, what do you talk to those guys about? Mm. And he looked at me and he said, the same things I talked to you about. And that's something. I said, 50 years later, he said, Mac, they never dealt with it. And now they're retired and they have more time and it all comes, you know, um, because the phraseology is almost identical. My therapist said, it all comes seeping out of the wood. And and the quote in the documentary is, it's all come flooding back. Mm-hmm. And and so to me, this notion that, you know, somehow or you're going to be able to, you know, put it in a box and, and throw it down the, the stairs into the basement and shut the door and it's going to stay there. Um, yeah, you, you're, you ought to be dissuaded of that because that's not the way it works. And I, and, uh, and that, that came flooding back to me as, as a result of that quote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, give us an update. So where are you? 
relative to um, it coming to market. Ken said that uh, by by this summer, we most of us will be able to watch it. Yes, we we um, we are waiting on on our film um, festival submissions, um, and then we also are talking with um, the local PBS station. They've been. Uh, very excited about the film um, since we first talked to them about it years ago, and um, so they're they're looking at how they can present it, um, broadcast it, and then either we're it doesn't look like the pandemic is going to end anytime soon, so we really need to look at how we can get the film out in the world where it'll start touching lives. I and, want to go to a premiere for God's sakes. And you're oh gonna, yeah, and you're going to deny? I'm not saying we're not going to have them. <laughs> and I don't want. I don't want to go in my by myself in my in my damn office here. I know we don't either, <laughs> because you know those those um, a screening in a room, a theater with. Um, full of people there's nothing like it there's nothing like it there's this empathy in the room and it's um it's exciting it's meaningful and it's memorable and uh so that's what we really want but we don't want to hold off getting it out to people where it'll start touching lives either so um if we can't do premieres right now um we're looking at uh, you know or in the the near future by summer um if we can't do that then then we will find a way to do an online premiere um just to get it out there and then once we can hold in-person screenings then we will start doing that again like we did with bravo so um anyway that's where we are Got it, got it, got it. All right. Um, in terms of the documentary itself, um, again, you've uh, you're the you're one of the two architects of all of this. Um, when people ask you what's it about, what do you tell them? The short version is it's about the the wives of. Um, Veteran, combat veterans who uh, um, bring the war home with them. You know, the war follows them home. And what it's like to um, live with that. What's the long version? <laughs> the long version is that... When we ask people to go off to war, we need to think about um, the long-term cost of doing that. When they come home and they, they bring the war home to their families and, um, you know, how, how it affects society, how it affects the home life, and that we need to make people aware of what we're asking and and the end result we're, we want to start a national dialogue about the effects when they come home and and to 
do what you're doing, Mac, with um, post-traumatic winning. We need to be proactive. We need to think about it ahead of time. We need to prepare people. And when they come home, we need to have a plan in place to help them then, too. And I would say the application of um, the applicability of this work is far beyond combat. If you're if you're been through trauma in your life and you live with it in your home, you you know combat trauma is simply a different genre of it, right? And you're gonna see you are gonna see yourself if 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 that's the life that you live, you're gonna see yourself in this documentary. Mm-hmm. And and that's why to me the applicability, the wide applicability, is um, is 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 really important. And so I would tell you, if you have trauma at all in your life and you live with it, somebody in your life lives with it, and you deal with the fallout around it, right? I call it the bug splat. You know, because sometimes I hear people say uh, in in discussions, well, you know, I know that, you know, mine's secondary trauma. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, and so, and, and, and then what I learned was the way it was used, it was like almost to dismiss their trauma. Mm. But if you look at the historical origin of those terms, they were to give credibility to trauma suffered by first responders, um, by other people that deal with this, family members, so that they know that they're included in the bug splat. So if Mm -hmm. you're in the bug splat, whether you're – and again, I mean, I play audio during post-traumatic winning of, of the mother of a Marine who watches him come home and get worse and, you know, is on medications and, and he's drinking and he's going to therapy and she's just watching her beautiful little baby, who's now a grown-ass man, get worse and worse and worse. And she is terrified that mm-hmm. she's going she's gonna to lose him, lays in bed at night and prays. Mm-hmm. Now, is that somehow or other some form of diminished trauma for a mother? I don't Hardly. think yeah, exactly. But when you hear them talk about it, they'll talk about, well, I know, and you hear all these modifiers and qualifiers, and I sit there and, and, and I say, stop already. Listen to your voice. Did you hear your voice? So to me, I'm, a, I'm kind of an audio guy, right? Um, if, if the eyes are a window to the soul, to the, soul the voice mm-hmm. is the mirror of the soul. And you heard mm-hmm. me earlier. I mean, I can't even, even talk trying to talk about you know, a couple of things that we talked about here in this interview. Um, and so, but, but it was amazing to me how people try to minimize it. And somebody told me, well, I think we do that because it's the, it, it makes it easier for us not to deal with it. If others people's are worse then I know I can live with mine. You know, I heard that from um, one of the world war two veterans wives. And that is, when I think of what my husband had to go through, who am I to complain? Right. Who am I to have problems after what he's done? So, and then, and, and then you the, hear it a lot. Right. And then, and then what happens is you don't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. You don't do the things that you need to li- do to live a great life. And that's, and that's the message of, you know, of post-traumatic winning. And, and that's why I love my conversation with Ken and Betty, because we're all in this, we're in the same business. And, um, and, and that, look, you can still live a great life and you guys are examples of it. 
Yeah, Kenny, Kenny, old Kenny boy now, bird watcher, yoga guy, right? <laughs> Doesn't drink. Like, who is this? And like, we were laughing the other day, going, God, if my Vietnam friends could see me now that I was running around with Raising Hell, they would laugh. But, but, but that's the message is that you can live a great life, but you can't do that unless you'll go down this path. And, uh, and I Married the War, to me, is a great illustration uh, of that. What haven't, I, I need to ask you one question about um, an author you, you wrote. You said you read S- Savon. Savon Fallon, S-I-O-B-H-A-N. No wonder Fallon, I Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-N. Okay, hold on. S-I-O-N. Her first name is S-I-O-B as in boy, H-A-N. Okay. And her last name? And her last name is Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-N. Nice Irish name. All right. And if you'd like, I'd love to put you in touch with her. Oh, I would. I would absolutely love that. Okay. All right. And and so she's written a number of books on uh on a spouse's perspective or what does she yes. write about? Uh the first book was uh, You Know When the Men Are Gone and it's about it's a collection of short stories about um wives of military men on deployment. And um then the second book is set in the Middle East. Um no. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia um, I'm sorry I don't remember exactly oh Dubai I know they were in Dubai for sure and um, her husband um, they were they lived there uh, she and her husband while he was um, stationed there and she wrote a book about two wives there um, this one was a novel fiction and um, they were they're amazing books, both of them. And now she's working on her third novel or her third book, which is going to be about the wife of Custer. Oh, Libby Custer. Custer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. She so. is a, uh, she's amazing. She wrote, you know, in fact, her, um, her book, God, I want to say it's called Boots and Saddles or something like that, um, is one of the great, um, historical accounts of life, you know, in the Dakotas and, and quote unquote out West mm-hmm. ever written because of her, her meticulous writing and record keeping. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing, but yes, an amazing woman too. An amazing woman. Well, you'll have a lot to talk about with her. <laughs> I know. Yeah. If you will put me in touch with her, I would appreciate it. All right. What happened? The last question here, what haven't I been smart enough to ask you? As we've talked about, um, I married the war. That uh, without which this interview won't be complete. Probably how the wives felt about being interviewed. Um, they were all so grateful to be able to tell their stories, and and I think that, like for Terry, you know, she went through something horrific with with Bob taking his own life and so one of the the pieces of that trauma is is that she went through this horrible thing but so what you know what what where's the meaning in it 
and to be able to tell the story and know that it's going to help other people i think validates that you know she does she does it did have meaning it means something that she went through that because now she can help other people you sound like you sound like victor frankel oh that's and that's a good thing just for, just for the record okay um, <laughs> the uh, no i mean because to go through things like this and nothing good come out of it, right? Yeah. I mean, is talk about, talk about a bad feeling. And, you know, Ken and I actually talked about, you know, we will have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and did I participate in a fool's errand? Mm-hmm. And, yes. you know, which is yeah. a sentiment that, you know, a lot of Vietnam veterans feel. That, you know, what did I go, what did I go participate in? What did I see all that stuff for, for what? And, and I would say the same thing relative to this. Uh, And knowing that what I just participated in is going to change people's lives, going to help people and help people live better lives is, um, is, is, is transformative. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what post traumatic winning is about. It's mm-hmm. sharing these these truths. Right. Um, sharing these truths. And again, that's why I love that phrase. I have to be a better version of myself. So I think it perfectly connotes you're not going back to Kansas anymore. You're going to go someplace else and you've got to grow and be something that you haven't been in your life. And um, and, and I love that. But it's but. I don't care what you've been through. You could still live a great life. The rules are going to be different. And, uh, and so, yeah, I did recently, I did post-traumatic winning like 29 times in three weeks. <laughs> and I saw you and Kenny boy every day. <laughs> right. And I, and I see, and there's three pictures. There's that punk ass picture of him outside the bunker in case mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. there's him in his Bravo hat, um, looking dashing and then there's you and he together. Mm-hmm. And when I do have time, I talk about you. I said, you know, I met Betty at a funeral for Ken Pipes. And we went out afterwards. And I said, you know, Betty, it's always interesting to meet the the spouses of my friends. Because, you know, as many issues as my friends have, you look at him and see Romeo. So you obviously have to have more. And Ken said, finally, somebody understands. <laughs> 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 and oh, and Betty looked at me and said, "Mac, you better be very, very careful, okay? <laughs> very careful." The um, well, Betty. First of all, I just want to congratulate you. Um, I'm not often left with that feeling of um, of being alone or wanting to be alone and 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 quiet and introspective. And and you know, I married to war. Did that. And I think that as somebody who's who's a furnisher of that experience, like Ken is, um, it makes you be introspective. And I think it, it left me, you know, continuing to wanting to be a better version of myself, right? And 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 I think, like Ken, I always haven't been that that better version. And it's a reminder for me, and really a summons you know, for me to continue to do the hard work that it takes so that, you know, you can be 
you can live a great life, but you can also contribute in a great way to the lives of the people that love you. And I think that's a, that's a huge part of your work. So I want to congratulate you and say I think you've done something um, fantastic, and I think it's your work is far beyond uh, the realm of combat trauma. I think that everybody who lives with somebody who's gone through traumatic things and that trauma echoes in their house on a daily basis will identify with what you do and, and what your work will help them. So congratulations. Thank you. That means a lot, Mac. Well, no, I mean, your work is great. So what's what's the next project? <laughs> oh, we're thinking. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> because the last time when we did this with Bravo, Ken was like, oh, I'm not, I don't, mm-hmm. rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. And then That's I right. talked to you a few, uh, I don't know how many months later, it was like, yeah, well, we're working on something new. What? Wait mm-hmm. a minute. <laughs> Kenny Boy was dragging his feet the last time I talked to him. It, it depends on which part of the roller coaster ride you catch us on. <laughs> the creative part is always the most fun. Well, uh, we will certainly um, wait with a beta breath because the substantive work uh, that that you guys do is absolutely wonderful. So congratulations, Betty, and thank you, uh, thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate you. All right. That is Betty Rogers. More of All Marine Radio coming up next right here on your home for it, the Our Warrior Radio Network. When I think of cool interviews, I think of stuff like that. Substantive, interesting um, stuff uh, that impacts the lives of people. And, uh, you know, in the email Betty sent me after we did the interview, she said, you know, I've never really talked about my high school boyfriend that was killed in Vietnam. And she said, Vietnam has been a part of my life since I was a young girl. So, um, interesting, interesting stuff. You know, and here's another idea. How different would coming home be if when you came home, you met guys from other conflicts? You met women who'd been through other conflicts who would mentor you. think it'd be a little different if you met people and said hey man let me tell you what it's going to be like yeah came home and did that as a unit yeah we have a panel of vietnam veterans got guys from desert storm we got guys from wherever world war ii korea vietnam whatever you could get together how's this stuff impact your life and you would sit down and in a group with them you know, part of your tribe, and talk about this stuff. And they would tell you no bullshit what they've been through. Might be a little bit different. Might be a little bit different. Uh, My thanks to uh, Betty Rogers for coming on and doing that interview. Awesome stuff. And I will keep you posted uh, when the documentary is actually released and make sure that you have every... All the information you need to to watch it. Because as I said, if you deal with any form of trauma, you're going to be better for watching this. No doubt in my mind. So I will keep you posted. So on a Wednesday, this St. Patrick's Day, have a great day. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. 
Don't be afraid to change somebody's life. And on that note, I'm out. <laughs>